0: So I think I've mentioned to you before that uh, one of my nephews um, went into the Navy after uh, college. In fact, he became a Navy SEAL. He saw uh, combat in Afghanistan. Uh, He's retired now. Uh, He's too young. He's in his early early 30s. He's a great great guy. Um, Once in a while, I'll ask him a little bit about his experience. the, uh, the whole SEAL training is kind of incredible. I'm sure some of you have read about it or you, know, you watched some documentaries about it. It's just like kind of mind boggling what they have to endure to become a SEAL. And he's great. He doesn't really talk almost ever about it on his own. Uh, but if you ask him, he'll kind of describe it. And it's insane. It's almost like superhuman uh, what these guys have to endure, just the, uh, the intensity of it and the, the brutality of it. So whenever he talks about it, <clears throat> I'm usually just kind of speechless. Like I've got nothing in my experience of life to compare that to. And it's not just SEALs. Um, I guess it's all special ops in the military. Army Rangers and Green Berets. I think the seven, uh, seven groups of special ops uh, in the military, but they're just the best of the best, right? They're the people you want when you're in a jam. Um, they're the people we need. They're just the best. I guess, though, I was thinking this: like, <sighs> go beyond the military, like, just all aspects, so many aspects of li- of life. Like, we always seem to kind of end up creating kind of like an, an elite group or an elite category, whatever it is you're talking about. I'm thinking of sports. Well, sports, you got the pros. you got the, uh, you know, the NFL and the NHL and the NBA and you know, whatever pro sport you love. They're the best. Um, you're on the travel team as a kid. You make uh, the all-star team as a kid. I mean, it's like just a notch above. Colleges. You know all different categories of colleges, and you get this like elite category up top, businesses, certain companies that have just got incredible reputation, everybody wants to work works for them, they come interviewing on on the campus everybody 's hoping to get a shot at an interview because they 're just elite well, i guess it 's just a part of the human condition i mean this you go back to even jesus 's day, you kind of had. Same dynamic going on. The elite, the best of the best, if you were Jewish, in Jesus' day, were the rabbis. They were just by far the most respected, most educated. They wielded the most power, maybe other than the Roman officials. Everybody kind of bowed to the rabbi. They were the best of the best. And this is how it worked. If you were a, a Jewish boy, you're uh, at six years old, you, uh, you start studying the Torah, first five books of the Bible. And it was kind of, that's it, that's the whole, that's the textbook. And you were given a, a Torah teacher, somebody who you kind of followed around. You studied with this guy for, for four years. So now you're 10 years old. In those four years, your job was to memorize those five books of the, of the Old Testament. So the bright kids, so the most committed kids, they did. Well, they move on. They go to the next level of being a rabbi. The rest who didn't make the cut, they kind of go back home and they begin to learn the trade of their father. They start to kind of shadow their dad, Um, family business. So now you got this group that is, they're still doing it. These like future rabbis. So they continue to study. Now it's the entire Old Testament that they ultimately have to memorize. It's crazy. I was not even know how you could do that. Very few did, there, were, there weren't a lot of rabbis. Um, so you'd have this attrition thing going on like as, as, as the, the competition continued and the requirements increased, eventually more would quit, more would fail out. They'd go back home and get into the family business. And then you'd be left with this final group who kind of made it, the best of the best. And then they had to find a rabbi who would mentor him. And this, this future rabbi would shadow the present rabbi. You'd watch what he did, how he did it, how he interpreted scripture. And eventually this guy becomes a rabbi. The best of the best. And then you get today's gospel, the one I just read. And we're told that Jesus is standing in this crowd And it's a big crowd, and he's upset. He's saddened. He's troubled. Um, Says he was moved with pity, looking out at this people, a huge crowd of very hurting people, very lost people. They're shepherdless. They don't know where to go. And he realizes they need help. They need to be rescued. And he says, I'm not doing it alone. I mean, Jesus, I guess he could, but he doesn't. So he picks some rabbis. But he does it way different than what I just described. He wasn't, none of the people that he selected were connected to rabbis. They weren't number one in their class. Actually, they were fishermen, most of them, which means. They probably failed out of rabbi school early on. That's why they're working in the family business. I bet you their father was a fisherman. So all of these guys presumably went to the whole rabbi thing for a while and then just said, I'm not doing it, I can't do it. And they're the ones Jesus calls. Like why does he go, why does he pick them? Why doesn't he go recruit, like an aggressive recruiting campaign? Why doesn't he go to the the rabbi schools and just snatch away the all-stars, the elite? He picks these flunkies. He picks these failed wannabe rabbis to become rabbis, to become leaders. I suspect that was intentional. I think his pick of them was a pick of us. I think he was making a huge statement. He's not looking for the elite. He's not looking for the person who's memorized a gazillion verses in a book. Not that that's unimportant, but it's not most. He wanted people... Well, we're told what, what then happens. He tells them, I'm calling you 12 and this is what I need you to do and where you gotta go. And you gotta go into the thick of it. You gotta go to the sick and the possessed and the lost and the poor and the broken. That's where you gotta go. You know, Saturday morning, I don't know if any of you guys uh, saw the front cover of Newsday Front headline, front page, it said, challenging time for young people. It's, so, oh my God, like one more, one more example, one more story, report of young people and mental health. Kids today are like the crowd that Jesus was speaking about in the gospel, the one that, who's, that troubled his heart. He was moved with pity over, that's, that's today. Suicide's up, depression is up, homicide is up. And Jesus sends these fishermen to those people. You know, uh, Bruce Springsteen had an album, came out in uh, 2002, uh, after 9-11. It's called The Rising. And the whole album is about 9-11 in different ways. Some of it's kind of pretty uh, direct sort of description of that terrible day. Some of it is more kind of interpretive, but it's all about 9-11. The first track on the album is called Into the Fire, and it describes a, a city fireman climbing the stairs of one of the towers, the buildings on fire, and these trapped sheep are upstairs. AND IT'S JUST THIS this GUY CLIMBING THESE STAIRS, GOING INTO THE FIRE. THAT'S WHERE JESUS SENT THESE FISHERMEN. AND WE'RE THE FISHERMEN. HE WAS TALKING TO US. IT WASN'T JUST THOSE 12. WE'RE THE FISHERMEN. HE SENT THEM INTO THE FIRE. SO WHAT'S THE FIRE? I think that's an important question. Hey, there's a lot of us in this church. It's not all the same fire. Sadly, there's a lot of fires out there with a lot of lost people who are hurting. And he wants us to go to them, not just those 12, not just priests. He wants us all to go into the fire. You know, there's this uh, author that I've been kind of enjoying lately. His name is uh, Eric Metaxas. He's a uh, interesting guy. He writes a lot about history and faith, kind of the connection between Christianity and the course of history. Um, He's written a couple of great biographies of great people. Um, He had a book called uh, Seven Men and the Secrets of Their Greatness. And he just profiles these seven great men from history who lived honorable, heroic lives, whose lives were guided by Christian principles. George Washington, John Paul II, Jackie Robinson. He wrote another one called Seven Seven Women, same point. Anyway, in the book on the guys, One of the chapters is on this guy. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, You know, I'm sure some of you know him. Some of you probably are like, yeah, I heard the name. You know, I'm not quite sure what his deal was. He was a German Lutheran pastor. He was a theologian. He was a writer. Super accomplished guy. And he wrote about, a lot like this guy Metaxas, he wrote about the role of Christianity in a secular world. Like, What's the job of the church? What's the church supposed to be? What's the church supposed to sound like? What should we hear from the church? What should the church be doing in a secular world? It's a great question. And this guy, Bonhoeffer, struggled with that and wrestled with that. He resisted Hitler in the 1930s in Germany and the rise of Nazism and he spoke out against what Hitler was doing and just the whole Nazi movement, which was getting stronger and stronger. Well, eventually they they arrested him and they, they executed him in a concentration camp. But he challenged the church of the 1930s to stand up to Nazism because they weren't. The church was afraid. It didn't know what to do. It was more or less hiding. And you've got this creeping intrusion of this evil Nazi thing. And more and more, they're just restricting people's lives, taking their freedoms away, controlling speech, censoring everything, controlling the church, demanding compliance. You have to believe in what we say is true, and if you don't, you're done. Total surrender to their sick ideology. And the church remained in, in many ways silent. And this, this, this Bonhoeffer just kept challenging the pastors, we've got to stand up, we've got to speak out, we've got to push back. Because Hitler knew if the church stood up, it would be a threat to his insanity. Because he, he was very strategic about it. He didn't explode on the church. It was subtle but consistent because he didn't want to tick the church off too much. Slowly but surely, he got his power and the church became more and more irrelevant. They say there were 18,000 pastors in Germany at that time. 3,000 of them joined Bonhoeffer and protested and they were just silenced most of them were murdered they were canceled and then there were another 3000 that completely surrendered and like embraced nazism like christian churches that just started saying okay we're we're with you and it's not our place to be getting involved in stuff you know, some churches do that do have done that today who are embracing some of the crazy, woke ideologies of today, you're like, are you out of your mind? You're a church, how can you be signing off on that? They just folded. There were another 12,000 who they say just did nothing. They knew Nazism was evil, Hitler was a nut, but they wouldn't say anything. They didn't, they didn't embrace Hitler, they just did nothing. They let Hitler happen. And then we know it happened. And some say, had the church stood up, I might have gone different. The church, they said, just should stay in the church. These 12,000, talk theology. Talk, Talk the scripture. But don't start talking about issues. Don't start talking about the culture. Don't start talking about the craziness that's going on out there. That's not the place of the church. And they became irrelevant. And we know what happened. We can't be those 12,000. And I guess a question I'd ask you is, in some sort of way, have you, have we, has the, has the church institutionally, have, have, have we as individual Catholics, Become a little bit too much like those twelve thousand, because we're just afraid. You say something and you just you're canceled. You're called a racist. You're called a homophobe. You're called a hater, because you express an opinion, and we know that's coming at us. So we're just all kind of cowering like the twelve thousand. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was here and down at Ignatius, and uh, it was the weekend of. Uh, a Good Shepherd Sunday, and I was talking about shepherds and wolves and how shepherds protected the sheep. And I talked about our schools, public schools in particular, and some of, what, some of, some of what's happening, concern about what's happening in our schools, and to some extent, what's being taught. Like really troubling stuff, this woke ideology critical race theory, that we're history being rewritten, that we're not a great country. In fact, we're a terrible country, stealing away parental authority over what's going to be taught, when it's going to be taught, little kids' innocence being stolen because they're being taught stuff that nobody should be taught, let alone a second grader some of the transgender stuff kind of almost like an indoctrination hey it's not all schools of course and it's certainly not all teachers not even most but it's also not fiction it's not being made up it's not conspiracy craziness we know this is happening and we need to push back we need we need a little bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to inspire us. You know, I, when I talked about that stuff, I got a lot of response, mostly positive, but I also got some, some angry letters. People who I just think become sort of, you, just, you, you touch on any, certain topics and they just become kind of blinded by it. They're not even hearing what you're saying. They just label you a hater. A couple of people just said that I, they called me a racist or, and, a, and a homophobe. I was kind of How did you jump to that? I'm a racist? This is what one person said. I believe in human rights and a separation of church and state. What I do politically should not matter in the house of the Lord. Tell that to Martin Luther King. Should he have kept his mouth shut? Should he have said nothing? He was a pastor. He's a hero. Should he have kept his mouth shut? Hey, if I was a pastor in the 19th century, should I have remained silent about the evil of slavery because it was political? Or if I was a pastor in the 20th century, should I have remained silent about segregation, the evil of segregation, because it was political? Or today, should we not talk about drug smuggling and human trafficking because ah, it's got kind of a political connotation. No, that's not political, it's gospel. It's Bonhoeffer. It's Jesus sending these 12 fishermen into the fire. That's what it is. And being silenced just can't be an option. You know what was common in, in some of these letters was all, I felt like they were almost written by the same person. They weren't, but it was like almost all of them said, "I don't go to church to hear this. I go to church to be uplifted." Well, I hope yes, yeah, so do I, and I hope most of the time we are uplifted. I don't go to church to be made uncomfortable. I go to church to feel good. Well, I hope most of the time we do feel good. But if all in the course of 52 Sundays, if 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 I go to church and I am never made a little uncomfortable, never challenged a little bit, I don't squirm, kind of, you don't want to throw me out of here? Because it's a lame church. It is not a gospel-driven church. It's a church that just hey, it's a church like those 12,000 pastors who kind of really stand for and say nothing. So Friday night. In Los Angeles, before the Dodger game, Pride Night, and gay rights groups are being honored and awarded. And this particular group is honored, and that's just like grossly insanely anti-Christian. And what they say, how they express themselves, they take the stuff that is most sacred to us and they trash it, they mock it. So they were invited, then they got disinvited, then they were re-invited. I guess the I guess the Dodger organization just made a calculated decision. I guess they said, we've got this group and we've got Christians. One of them's gonna be upset I think the Christians will be less. We can trash them and they're not really gonna care. They're gonna bounce back. They're not really gonna worry about it. But the other group might, so we'll bow to them. So June is Pride Month. What if we made July, we've had it month? know we're we're tired of being a, a punching bag month and we need to be respected we need to live in a, in, a, in a society where people can disagree and not be destroyed you know if every Christian in Los Angeles said for the month of July we're not going to a game We're not buying a beer, we're not buying a hot dog, we're not buying a ticket for a month. Every Christian, guess what the Dodgers would never do again? I think we need to wake up. We need to be sort of, we've been sleeping like those 12,000 pastors. And look what happened because they slept We need more Bonhoeffer. (laughs) Look him up. Shadow him. You know that song, Into the Fire? That's where he went. So should we.